Okay, we are back on track. Last week we had a little detour there, but we are back in the book of John. We are in chapter 6 today. We have made it to chapter 6. So we're going to be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Obviously, this is known as Jesus feeding the 5,000. Okay? I'm going to read through verses 1 through 14 real quick here. It says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they were watching the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. But Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So Jesus, after raising his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? But he was saying this only to test him, for he himself knew what he intended to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not enough for them, for, for each to receive just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people recline to eat. Now there was plenty of grass in the place, so the men reclined, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were reclining. Likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he said to the disciples, Gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this, truly, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Okay, so... If you've never, ever heard of this event, I'd be shocked. This is probably one of the few that everybody is aware of. Uh, Jesus feeds 5,000 to possibly 20,000 people here. Because when you see here, he talks about the men. Uh, there was obviously probably women and children with some of these people. So regardless, 5,000, 20,000, it's a lot of people either way with five barley loaves and two fish. So, this large group of people has been with him, and if you notice here, he's been healing. And according to Luke 9, uh, which parallels this, he's been teaching these people as well during the day. So it's been a long day, and he needed to teach his disciples something here. You look at the context of what Mark 6 gives us, because like I said, these other Gospels all work in tandem here together. Uh, we get different witnesses from different people in this event. Mark 6, 34-37, uh, when I was reading it, kind of made me chuckle a little bit. So, in this one it says, When Jesus went ashore, He saw a large crowd, and He felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and began to teach them many things. And when it was already late, his disciples came up to him and said, This place is secluded and it is already late. Send them away so that they will go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. 
But he answered them. This is the part that made me kind of laugh. He said, you give them something to eat. And he said, there's an exclamation point in there. He, you do it. So, this wasn't about the food, though. He was going to be teaching the, the disciples something. He was going to be showing us something. And he was going to take a kid's lunch and make it worth over six months worth of wages easily. So, and the disciples would serve it. They would serve the multitude. As he said, you feed them, they were going to feed them. And it's funny because right away you have Philip, who is the more heady of the people, and he automatically sees the finances in it. And he says, Lord, we, we don't have enough denarii for the six months worth of denarii. He's talking about wages. Six months worth of wages would not be enough to feed all these people even a little bit. And Andrew continues into this play here where he, he's kind of following Philip on that and he shows in desperation. He says, all we got is this. This is all we've got, Lord. We obviously do not have enough to do what you're asking us to do. And it's not only some loaves, because it is only a, a few loaves of bread, but it's poor people's bread. It's barley. Uh, barley is not known, especially back then, as being a bread that somebody with, who was well off would eat. You just wouldn't. A lot of times you give it to the animals. So we had that and some salted fish. Uh, we don't see a lot about the miracle, just like when the water is turned into wine. We see that it happens. We don't see the process per se. But we see that the disciples knew it was happening because they started distributing food. Thank you. And the boy who had just a tiny little lunch, like the other people, gets to eat to his fill. And that's why they, they see these things going on and they say, look, this is the prophet just like Moses. Now, that's the, that is what happened here. That's the story. There's not an incredibly a lot to it, but there's concepts in here that are really important. Um, I want to go to Psalms for a second here. Uh, Psalm 78. I was going to read 19 through 22, but I think I want to read a little farther in it for a minute. Um, find it in my Bible. So Psalm 78. It's a long psalm. <clears throat> All right, it says, My people, hear my instruction. Listen to what I say. <clears throat> I will declare wise things. I will speak mysteries from the past. Things we have known and uh, heard and known that our fathers have passed down to us. So these are things that the Israelites are supposed to be passing on to their children. Okay, We must not hide them from their children, but must tell a future generation the praises of the Lord. His might and wonderful works He has performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel. And He commanded our fathers to teach their children so that a future generation of children may yet, uh, children yet to be born might know. 
They were to rise and tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep His commandments. And then we skip down to 19 here. So in between that, he talks about all the things that God has done for the Israelites, all the miracles, all the ways He has led the people. And you get to 19 and he says, they spoke against God saying, is God able to provide food in the wilderness? Is He able to do these things? Now these people are asking if God can do these things when their lineage had seen these things happen. They're doubting it. So we have in the psalm, God gets angry that the people are doubting the things that He has already done for them, that He has already shown them that He can do. He wants His children to believe Him. So the reason I bring that up is because this miracle, and really the next one as well, where Jesus walks on water, these are probably the two, which is odd enough to me, these are the two miracles that really get mentioned the most, it seems like. You hear about them a lot. You, you hear about them a lot from believers, but you also hear about them a lot from people who do not believe and they will go to these immediately to make fun of them. They will talk about how it's impossible for what Jesus could have done here with the 5,000. Um, I remember in high school, I don't think they were doing it to make fun of, but our science project one year was to walk across water, walk across the pool. And so we designed these little shoes to try to do it. Mostly everybody sank, but a couple people got them to semi-work and kind of walked across the water a little bit, but it was because they try to act like it's impossible that we were doing these things. And that's not what Scripture is teaching us here. Scripture is teaching us that these things have happened, that God wants us to know that they've happened, and He wants us to pass this knowledge down to our children. Because if you don't, the world is going to tell them that they did not happen. So, this miracle in specific is one of the few that is mentioned in all four Gospels. All four Gospels don't completely line up because we have different witnesses. They're not wrong, we just have different witnesses. But this miracle in particular seems to have been important. It was important that Jesus relayed this to us in the Holy Spirit, that people wrote this down. And it's so important that that's why people rail against it. They talk about how you could not have done something like this. So the question comes down to today, when we read this miracle that he took five barley loaves, four people's food, two salted fish, and he fed 5,000 people with it, and then there was much left over, do you believe it is the question. Did Jesus really do this? So that's the question for each of us to look at internally and decide is this what we, do we believe what the Scripture says here? Because there's people that will tell you things like it was a trick, like maybe they had knew they were going to do this, and they stored some food upwards in the mountains somewhere so they could bring it out and, and pretend that this was happening. Uh, there's people that would say that it was just an exaggeration of what occurred, that really, you know, some people brought food and Jesus just encouraged everyone to share with one another, and that that's how the 5,000 were fed. 
And then there's, of course, just people who will say it's flat out a myth that this didn't happen. The reason I'm saying this is because this is a snare. This is a trap that the world sets for us when we're in our scriptures. Okay? The reason that it is is because if this event is not true, how many others are not? If you come to the point where you say, well, this one, or the walking on water, or the raising of Lazarus, if you say that these are not true events, or the resurrection, what are you standing on? We either believe that this book is the inspired Word of God, or we don't. You can't pick and choose through there which parts are good, which parts are bad, uh, which parts you're going to listen to, which parts you're not within context. It's impossible to follow Jesus in a worldview where you only think that maybe one or two of the miracles are real, but the other ones are fake. Why would God put these in here if they were fake? In that view, God's not going to be all-knowing for you. He's not going to be all-powerful. He's not going to be all-loving. All of these things, you're going to get to a point to where your life isn't going to mean anything. Because how do you find existence, meaning of your existence in this book if you start doubting it? If you doubt the things that are true that are in here? What's going to happen is that a person who finds one miracle that they just can't wrap their head around will eventually fall into a naturalistic mindset. They will fall into a view of the only thing that is real is what nature has set before us, the laws of nature. And inside of that, your family, your life, everything you do has no meaning inside of it. Nature could care less if you thrive. Nature could care less if you have a family, if you have a spouse, if you have a meaningful job. That is a horrible way to live, and that is a horrible thing to pass on to children. And it's ungroundable. There's, no, there's just no way of living like that. In that kind of view... You can kill all the babies. You can have as many abortions as you want. You can kill off other races like Hitler did. And it all is the same. It all ends up in nothingness because there's no meaning. But if this miracle is true, if all the miracles in Scripture are true, if they are God-breathed, then that produces the hope that the world will never be able to do. You can't even look at... Now, some of you were unfortunately dragged through apologetics with me earlier in the year. And we talked about these arguments. We talked about how just creation itself proves that miracles can occur because something coming out of nothing is the, one of the biggest miracles there is aside from the resurrection. That's not how the naturalistic world would work. So we know that miracles are possible because of that, because of our creation. And because we know that these miracles are possible, because we see the evidences inside of Scripture and outside of Scripture for our Bible here, we know that we are created by somebody. We know that God wants us to be born again and to become one of His children. We know that we have purpose in life to love God and to love other people. 
And we know that Christ's work and his victory on the cross is the lifeline for all of us sinners. And that should take away any anxiety that you have in your life and any anxiety about the continuation of this life when you cross the veil. So Christ loves us in abundance, just as he did for the 5,000. And we see it more because we see what happened on the cross. They hadn't seen this yet. So Christ doesn't just give us our hope. Don't fall into that. He is our hope. And He is our only hope. He's our rock, not people. If you put, if you put your hope into people, you're going to be let down. Because we're all fallen. We all mess up. If you put your hope into countries or governments, you're going to be let down. I'm sure Henry has seen the government change quite a bit in his lifetime. We anchor ourselves to Christ because He is unchanging. His love is unchanging. It doesn't fluctuate. His Word doesn't change. So, when we look at this though, the only hurdle that we have in our relationship with Christ is in us. It's easy. We can look at this and we can read the Bible and we can look at the Israelites and we can say, man, look at how many times they fell away from God. I mean, go through the Old Testament. Go through Judges and you will see time after time after time again they fall away from God. They fall into these odd teachings. And you even see that in the New Testament. Christ has a lot of followers and a lot of them leave Him. But it is the same with us. You know, we can rail against them because it seems like they just followed him for healings and food, things like that that would have been very important. And they seem like they may have been following him because Christ was doing what they had wanted. But that's really, it's no different than today. We all know somebody in our life who was just gung ho for Jesus. And then something happened. They hit a hard time. And all of a sudden, you can see them pull away. And then you see some people who are the opposite. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. But then as soon as something bad happens, oh, hey, Jesus, remember me? Right? We see both sides of the coin there. But when we read our scriptures, when we see what they really say, we are to follow Christ and love him not for what he has done for us, or will do for us, but because of who He is. That's what anchors us, not the works that He has done. So, if we're, if we're listening to this today, God has, God has brought us to this specific situation, this specific day. God's providence has brought us here today. God's providence is His, is his provision for us as He guides us through our life. The way God works in your life. Accomplishing things with you. And it's amazing to see when God works in your life. And it can be ugly too when God will work in your life and then you attribute it to something like chance or coincidence or random opportunity. That's a blasphemy. So God brought these people on the mountain. He brought that child and his little meal there. And he didn't desert them. 
And it's an analogy as well as a real event because it shows us that God will not desert us if we put our faith in Him. He's brought us here at this point in our life for a purpose. We have meaning. And you have, whether you know it or not, everyone has some type of job to do in this world that God has brought us here for. Some of it is bigger than others from what we see, but it's all part of God's plan. But we have to trust Him and let Him work in us. So, the child's lunch was meager, and many of us in our life have thought that we are too meager to do whatever God has for us to do. We think that because we think I'm just one person. How much of an effect can I make on this world? But no one with the power of God in them is insufficient. That's the point. And even if your lot in life was to just do small things here and there for people, how do you know that they're small? How do you know what difference it makes to that one person that you were kind to them that day or that you bought them a meal or you did whatever it happened to have been, that you shared the gospel with them? No one's purpose in God's plan is, is empty. So we bring our insufficient self because by ourselves we are insufficient. We bring ourselves to Jesus and He takes us, He accepts us, He blesses us, and He changes us. He changes us and He changes our life and our spirit in some way or form and there is an increase. And that's where the power of God is in this world. That's the beauty of the Gospel it makes our faith beautiful, and it makes our family of God special. So, all these miracles are possible because God is real. We have to remember that.